welcome to the show. This is Wrong Place, Right Crime, and I'm your host, Frank Zaffaro. So in this episode, we are going to talk to Terrence McCauley, a really cool guy that I first met at VoucherCon last September down in St. Petersburg. And in fact, he was one of the first people I met, and he uh, was very kind. He, he befriended me right away and uh, invited me to dinner with him and then invited me to a, a private dinner party that they had uh, the very next night. Uh, just uh, a really cool guy. Writes a variety of uh, subgenres. But one of his more recent books, The Fairfax Incident, uh, takes place in the 30s, and uh, I've been reading that, and it is very good, historical mystery. And uh, he also dabbles in westerns, and so very thoughtful guy, gives some great reasoned, well-spoken uh, responses to the questions I asked him, and I think you're going to enjoy hearing from him. Uh, but before that, I need to let you know that Wrong Place, Right Crime is sponsored by Down and Out Books, and here from Down and Out Books to tell you what's coming out in the month of March is Eric Campbell, the chief editor and founder of Down and Out Books. Hi, Frank. This is Eric at Down and Out Books with two new titles for your listeners. First up is an incredible thriller called The Unrepentance by EAMR. 18-year-old Charlotte Rays ran away from an abusive home only to end up tricked, kidnapped, and taken across the country by criminals. Charlotte manages to escape with the help of a reluctant former soldier named Mace Peterson, but she can't seem to shake the gang or the crooked cop paid to bring her back alive. With nowhere to run and nowhere to hide, Charlotte realizes she only has one option. She has to fight. For your readers who enjoy a nail-biting thriller, with a Hitchcock-style MacGuffin, we're publishing Silent Remains, which may just be Jerry Kenley's best book he's ever written. When SFPD homicide inspector Nick Jarnack investigates the murder of a 19-year-old girl missing for 40 years, her skeleton found in the mud of a construction site near the remains of two dozen Indians who have been in the ground for two centuries, he becomes involved in a bizarre, complex plot that involves a Macau-based mafia chief, several crooked state and local politicians, a cross-dressing Mongolian hitman, and a 77-year-old private eye and his burned-out ex-SFD partner who's hoping to make one last haul before leaving the department. Your listeners can find out more at downandoutbooks.com. Thanks a million for having me on the show. Well, thanks, Eric. And uh, there you go, folks, some uh, good books uh, to, to check out. Uh, if you want to learn more about them, of course, go to downoutbooks.com. But if you want to hear the authors talking about those particular books, Ed Amar was on an episode of the podcast uh, just recently. Check the archives there. And talking about his uh, book, Unrepentant. And uh, Jerry Kinley has been on the show as well, although his episode was earlier on uh, before this newest book. Well worth your time to check out both authors. Moving to this episode, uh, we're going to talk to Terrence McCauley. And as I mentioned before, he writes uh, crime fiction and thrillers and westerns. Uh, had a great conversation with him, and I think you're going to enjoy it. Let's meet Terrence. Well, hi, Terrence. Welcome to the show. Hey, pal. Thank you for having me. So for uh, folks that may not be familiar with uh, with your work or only have read your crime fiction or your westerns, 
Uh, could you give us a quick overview of maybe the different uh, subgenres of the of of crime, and then the kind of westerns that you write? Sure. Um, I have written period pieces. Uh, uh, I've got three novels that are set in the 1930s. Uh, they're all related. The first one is Prohibition. Then the second one is a sequel to that, but told by a different narrator. Uh, set in 1931, New York, called Slow Burn. The third one is The Fairfax Incident, which is about when is a suicide not a suicide, but a murder. The the thing that's fascinating about it is is even in the opening chapter of that book, um, the widow of uh, of the victim of Fairfax, uh, yeah, of Fairfax, the Fairfax widow, you know she you know, was convinced that he was murdered, but Doherty, he lays out some pretty convincing reasons why it was a suicide. So the premise uh, from the very beginning is, is, is really strong. Before we go on to some of your other work, then um, let's stay in the period piece for just a minute. Um, How much, how much research did you need to do for, for these? Because these are set back in the thirties and forties, right? 1930s, actually, the early 1930s in New York City. Prohibition is set in 1930, um, and it's about um, an Irish enforcer for the Irish mob, a guy named Terry Quinn, who has to use his brains instead of his brawn to find out who was trying to pull down his boss's criminal empire and why. I set it in 1930 for a few reasons. Number one, it was the ending of Prohibition. The, mm-hmm. Everyone knew it was only a matter of time before it came to an end. Uh, it was also the beginning of the Great Depression, and New York City itself was in a flux uh, time of great change and upheaval. Um, people who had never known uh, poverty were starting to understand that they may lose their jobs, they may lose their livelihood, and the criminal element was no different. Times were tough for them as well. So I wanted to tell a story that people could recognize as a 1930s story, but that didn't didn't go by the numbers. I didn't want to write pastiche. I didn't want to write a Humphrey Bogart tribute or a Dashiell Hammett tribute. I wanted to write something that modern day audiences would appreciate because they could relate to the bad guy. And, um, you know, usually when you read Hammett or you read Chandler, who was a little bit later, the good guy, the, the protagonist was always a little bit bad, but mostly good. In Prohibition, I wanted to write about a guy who was mostly bad but just a little bit good. And uh, it's just good enough for you to root for him. So you find out that you're actually rooting for the bad guy. Then with Slow Burn, I took a minor character from the first book and wrote it in the first person. Uh, it was by the, the corrupt detective named Charlie Doherty. It's set one year later after Prohibition, and it is uh, intentionally set in that wild year where New York was plunged almost into revolution. You had rent strikes, you had the rise of um, actual communism in the city. You had Hoovervilles beginning to spring up all over Central Park. And all in the middle of this, you have a wave of reform that is looking to push aside a corrupt Tammany Hall detective like Charlie Doherty. The book also centers around how Doherty's been put out to pasture and ha- finds himself back uh, sitting on a pile of gold because he finds himself in the middle of a murder-kidnapping case that involves one of the wealthiest families in the city and most powerful families in the city. He then realizes that he cares more about the family than he realized, and um, then the case becomes more personal for him, and he tries to do his best instead of looking for just a regular payday, like the crooked cop that he is. 
Um, and then we go into uh, the Fairfax incident, which takes place after Charlie leaves the force, and now he's a private detective, and he finds himself assigned to a case where, like I said before, a suicide might not necessarily be a suicide. It could be murder. And there's references right off the bat in this book, uh, The Fairfax Incident, to his corrupt past. I mean, it's certainly not something that you're hiding. No, I'm not. And I wanted to do that because I wanted you to see that he's at peace with it, that he knew what he was doing. And I don't I never wanted the protagonist to be one of these guys who sits there alone in his room at night, smoking a cigarette and ruminating about all the mistakes he made. He's sorry that he got bounced off the force, but he was part of a machine and he knew what he was doing while he was doing it. And he took his lumps and he has happened to land on his feet. He has uh, landed in a pile of clover and he understands that. So that's why he's reluctant to take this case that they mentioned earlier in the book. But he takes it because he says, hey, why am I going to complain? I have it good. I might as well give it a shot. It's a very human response. And that's why I try to portray in all of my books. So I'll circle back to the question then. Um, how much research did you have to do in order to put these, uh, these three books together? Right. It'd be a good idea if I did answer your question. <laughs> this is what happens when you put an, an Irishman in front of a microphone. We wind up going on for hours uh, about nonsense. I'll, I'll be singing in a couple of minutes. Uh, the, the research that I did was extensive, and it was also a pleasure to do. I'm a history buff. I'm not a historian uh, by training, but I, I definitely love history. I love po politics, and I love political history. And by setting it in the 1930s, I was able to satisfy my love of all of the above. Uh, like I said, and this is how I got off on the tangent, the, um, you know, it was the end of Prohibition. It was the beginning of the uh, Great Depression. So there's a lot of uh, turmoil, a lot of historical accuracy there. Uh, I write about Texas Guinan, for example, who was Mae West's um, mentor, if you will. Uh, and she's a real-life person, too. So um, then when I did in 1930, moved to 1931, I had to do a lot of research about the reform movement. And I wanted to make sure that they didn't come off as too pie-eyed and head in the sky, but they were actually really tough people looking to get rid of Tammany Hall, and ultimately they had some degree of success. Um, and then when I did um, the research into the Fairfax incident, that one opened my eyes more than research into anything else. Why When that? I realized, well, because there's, um, since you haven't read the book, I'm not going to spoil it for you, there are some political events that took place in 1933, New York, on where I was shocked that it happened, and I didn't realize that uh, things had gotten to that point so quickly. And if you read the book, you'll understand what I'm talking about. And it was a joy to write because I'm on the same journey as the reader. And the mm -hmm. reader is pretty much learning things as I learn them. I always knew about them in advance, in, you know, in the uh, in the back of my mind, but I didn't know they were so close together. So. It was really a great uh, experience for me to write that one. Well, looking forward to it. I, I'm still in the early stages of the book. Um, in fact, that's true of three of your books. I started three of them to get a taste of, of your work, and uh, and I, I keep going back to, to one or the other, uh, depending on what kind of mood I'm in, because they're all very different, um, which I guess is a, not a bad segue to your university series. Um, which is uh, quite different than, than your period pieces. Um, what's the lay of the land with, with that series? 
Well, I've always loved spy thrillers. I've always loved um, thriller novels, whether they were spies or otherwise. And um, but I didn't want to do with talking about research. I didn't want to do a ton of research into modern day spy techniques. I didn't want to write a book that was going to be about the CIA or the NSA or the DIA or any of the other agencies because you know I knew I'd never get all of the details right, and I knew I'd come under criticism because I don't have a background in intelligence. I knew I wanted to tell a story, but I didn't want to waste a lot of time doing a lot of research just so I could sound reasonably intelligent about the way the CIA works, for example. I wanted to get to the story about the people involved. I wanted to get to how the characters are affected and how they drive the plot. So in Sympathy for the Devil, I create an entirely different um, independent intelligence agency called the University. And the protagonist is James Hicks. And he has been working for the university for a while. He's in charge of their New York City office. And he finds himself betrayed by an operative on a fairly routine um, operation. And he has to find out why. And when he starts peeling the onion, he realizes that it wasn't such a routine operation. Things go much deeper and pose a much more dire threat to New York City and the country than he ever dreamed. The subsequent books, A Murder of Crows and A Conspiracy of Ravens, they all uh, feed off the events that happen in Sympathy for the Devil. Uh, for research, I was lucky enough that, or I'm lucky enough, I don't know how you, anybody can view it, is um, that Snowden's uh, revelations came out right around that time and the WikiLeaks about what our nation was up to. And um, I was able to take a lot of the material that was released from that and I was able to uh, talk about things in my own way. I didn't necessarily need to talk to a former uh, spy or a CIA person, assuming I could get any of them to talk to me at all. <laughs> um, and I also didn't want to hear about anything that could be top secret because I didn't want to wind up in Guantanamo in an orange jumpsuit with a hood <laughs> over my head. Um, <laughs> orange is not my color and I would not do well in prison. So I... I wanted to make it all up. So I tried to tell a um, story that was based on what I would say is mere technology at the time. Uh, the books came out about four years ago. In the first book, it's, uh, Sympathy for the Devil, James Hicks is able to use uh, the technology on his handheld device, his telephone, by putting his thumbprint down and having the camera take a picture of his face and letting him into the secure aspects of his phone. That's the one thing I got a lot of negative emails about because I had people who were experts in the field tell me there was absolutely no way that anybody could ever have a handheld device where they have their thumbprint and their face recognized all at the same time. It's just impossible. You jump the shark on that one. And now it's common day practice. Hmm. So I'd rather take a, a leap of imagination than accidentally put something in there for real and wind up on a military base someplace. You know, the CIA is is often called the company. Is that when you use your, the term the university, are you kind of giving a sideways glance at that? I definitely have a reason why it's called the university. And I had a lot of people ask me about that. And I keep telling people, read the books and you'll find out why. And I, I can tell you, based on the book you're reading now, keep reading and you'll find out why. All right, I will. Fairfax Symphony. Uh, it's it's pretty impressive, uh, and it, it it almost 
reads like a hyper CIA, like uh, it could exist in the same universe as the CIA, but uh, on a plane above it. And, and, you know, there are people in the CIA who don't even know it exists because they don't have the clearance. You're, you're getting right to the heart of everything. And that's why I did it. I did it like that. I mean, of course they do in later books. Uh, come, they run into each other, and there's definitely cross-pollination between the two of them. But there's also a reason why they're why they're apart. And mm-hmm. I had, when I went on a little bit of a mini book tour about uh, Sympathy for the Devil, I was really happy that people were asking me questions about it. Like, I want to know more about Hex's background. I want to learn more about the university. Because I don't give you that standard scene where everyone's sitting down and going over the file and talking about how many medals he's got and all of those things. I wanted you to be part of it because I'm building a new world and I want you to understand it as it unfolds for me too. Yeah, and that, that works well because it gives you a chance to really process each new piece of information and find it uh, where it fits into what you already know before you're bombarded with more information. Right. And it gives people a reason to look forward to the next book because I, you know, if you already know everything in book one, then you can say, ah, I don't really care about book two. But if you if you say there's some unanswered questions, to say, okay, maybe I'll learn more. And you certainly do. I try to do something a little bit different in each of the university books. Now, um, in addition to the thrillers, in addition to the period crime fiction, uh, you've branched out into westerns as well. Yes, I have. I'm also reading the beginning uh, chapters <laughs> of uh, uh, When Bullets Fly which is a Sheriff Aaron Mackey novel, first in a series. And so far, i got to be honest with you, it reads like a uh, like a crime fiction novel set in the West. Yep, yep, and that's what it is. And you know what? Most people who haven't read Westerns don't realize that's exactly what they are. They're crime fiction. They're Victorian crime fiction, believe it or not, as Victorian as Sherlock Holmes, without the cobblestone streets and the gaslit uh, alleyways. Uh, they had the same kind of sensibilities, even though they were a little bit rougher. Uh, in terms of relatability, I wanted the audience to understand that these are people who've gone through struggles. They, uh, they've understood loss. They live on the precipice of danger every single day, uh, whether it be from another human being, the weather, sickness, anything really. And um, in Aaron Mackey, I write about a former cavalry officer who was thrown out of the cavalry for reasons that were not his fault. And um, his partner, an African-American deputy who served with him called Billy Sunday. Together, they faced down a group of people who are looking to attack the town of Dover Station, Montana. It's a fictional town. People seem to like it. They like the, uh, the buildup of it. They like the rapport between all of the colorful characters I introduce even like the bad guy, which is interesting. Uh, He's Hmm. the kind of guy that you love to hate. And I find those characters to be very interesting as well. So it's gotten great reviews. It did pretty well in the stores. And um, Pinnacle slash Kensington's a classy outfit. They're great to work with. They, They support their stuff. And they really did a lot to get the book out there. So thankfully, I have a second book coming out in that series, which is called Dark Territory. And so that one will be coming out in March. I like how at the beginning, he's just sicker than a dog. <laughs> and there's a bunch of fights that are about to break out up the street at the tavern. And he's just like, yeah, well, let them, let them fight as long as they don't shoot each other. I'm not going to, I'm not getting out of this chair. <laughs> yeah. But then when he does get out of the chair, things start, then, then it's on. And that's the whole thing. I, I mean, people, uh, a lot of people have said they were interested that I made him sick in the beginning. Um, they've had characters wounded. 
they've had major characters wounded, but not the protagonist. But I wanted you to understand that this is your, your protagonist, this is your hero, and he's human. I, I try to show you the kind of character he is rather than just tell you. And that's what good Westerns try to do, in my opinion. So I'll ask you the same question, since it's a period piece as well. How much research did you need to do to write uh, Aaron Mackey? You know what? If you're going to write a serious Western, you better do your research, because there's a lot of misinformation out there. The 1950s television has done more damage to that part of our history than anything else. It's absolutely ridiculous, the kinds of perceptions even I had about what I thought was real. Um, Like we were talking about in an email a couple of days ago, that whole thing about the shootout in Main Street at high noon, that Mm -hmm. didn't happen. You're not going to go through all of that stuff to get out there um, and just stand there in the middle of the street and shoot, let somebody shoot at you and whatnot. Uh, The guns weren't that good to begin with, and they weren't that accurate, um, and and you're not going to go ahead and do that. Uh, So I wanted to take that kind of stuff out and take out a lot of the misconceptions we had about race back then. Um, White people and black people did live together, and so did Mm -hmm. uh, in certain parts of the country, and, and so did former Indians. I mean, they'd be worried about them in a place like Montana, but you know, as long as people uh, were able to get along, they did get along. They realized that you went through a trial and error of uh, a trial by fire of, of coming out that far west. So if you made it that far, you must have something to you. And there was a certain mutual respect that people had. And there was also a toughness, too. It's funny, I'm not a huge John Wayne fan, believe it or not, but John Wayne hated High Noon. And he hated it because he had done a lot of reading about the West. And he said that the townspeople would never cower like that. And often they didn't. Um, there's a great book called Tough Towns. I don't remember the author's name, but he goes through a whole bunch of towns where the townspeople actually shot the people who were trying to rob the bank or trying to, or, or who were problematic. Um, and there's a great scene at the end of Open Range where you actually see them chasing down one of the gunmen and they, they blow the guy to hell because that's what they used to do. I mean, these people went through a hell of a lot to get out there. They're not going to let you just ride into their bank and take their money because that is their money. There's no FDIC back then. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, I mean, I, so the research I did was, uh, was basically to burn away a lot of the misconceptions that I had and a lot of people have had about that genre. And um, it was a really great experience. Uh, we'll get back to our conversation with Terrence McCauley in just a few moments, but uh, this is the time of the show where I like to bring you a few book recommendations from the experts. And by experts, I mean that group of people that fall under the category of bookstore owners, particularly mystery bookstores, particularly independent mystery bookstores, uh, as well as uh, book reviewers, editors, and other authors. And that's what we're going to hear from in this particular episode is uh, uh, one of the authors who's been on the show and an editor. Uh, Joni Fisher has a recommendation for you first, and then Jim Thompson is going to make a recommendation. Uh, Jim's recommendation will be, the, will be the first of a series over the next few episodes uh, that are linked by a theme that he wanted to talk about. Without further ado, here's your book recommendations. Hi, I'm Joni Fisher, author of the Compass Crime series. And I would like to recommend an author's books. Um, His name is Dr. Timothy Brown. And when I first met him, he was a medical missionary 
going to those places, those back ends of the world that you never want to go to, he would live there and he would take his family with him. I, I really admired that. He walked away from a orthopedic practice. He could have lived a very comfortable life, but he wanted to be a medical missionary. And he has just retired and he started writing books that take place in these very remote areas. And it's from the point of view of a physician and some medical missionaries that are friends of his. Great adventures happen. There are extremely thrilling books. The first one is Maya Hope and takes place in South America. The Tree of Life takes place in Turkey. And The Rusted Scalpel takes place in the Far East in Indonesia and I think Brunei. They're very exciting books. Hi, um, I'm Jim Thompson. I'm a, uh, I make my living as an editor and I also write short stories and uh, I've been invited here today to talk about uh, some recent crime novels that I've read. Each of these four books I'm going to talk about have a common problem, which is uh, third acts that don't entirely work at least in my opinion. So the first one I want to talk about is uh, a fairly new thriller called No Exit by Taylor Adams. The story is about a college-age girl who gets trapped at a rest stop during a snowstorm in the mountains in the American West um, with four strangers. And she goes out into the parking lot and sees a child in the cage of, in the back of a vehicle of belonging to one of the people, but she doesn't know who it is. She doesn't know what she's going to do about it. There's hours till any possible rescue. So it's a wonderful setup. It's it's pretty lean and tight and very suspenseful and very nerve-wracking. But I had a hard time believing it because the uh, characters made choices that seemed to fit the plot's needs more than their own. They didn't the characters do not seem to follow their established logic. For one thing, here's a college girl driving a long drive, and she doesn't think to bring a cell phone charger cord, which I think most kids of that age would uh, think to grab before they grabbed a pair of pants. So um, I enjoyed No Exit. I'm not sure I believed a word of it, which is kind of a weird juxtaposition, but... Uh, so I can't quite not recommend it, and yet I can't quite recommend it either. I would just say maybe pick it up, give it a look, and if it pulls you in, great. If not, uh, you've been warned. Uh, thank you, Joni and Jim. Folks, you know, they're called experts for a reason. They're uh, well worth uh, checking out the books that they talk about. And now let's get back to our conversation with Terrence McCauley. I always check people's webpage out uh, before the before the show. And uh, one thing I'll say is you've got a nice looking website. Thank uh, you. It's just uh, terrencepmacaulay.com. And it's got you know something about all of your books here uh, that we just got through talking about. But I also noticed uh, that we have a few things in common. You've had a number of stories in different issues of Thug Lit, right. um, like half a dozen or so at least. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I've only been in one, but the, you know, <laughs> at least we've got that in common. Uh, some some thug lit brotherhood with uh, Todd Robinson, B- Big Daddy Thug himself. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so uh, did you just uh, 
send stories in or were you uh, solicited or how how'd you end up with cuz it looks to me like at least uh 6 or so here yeah well i got um i got the, i had the honor to get to know Todd and uh, through the writing community and uh he's he's a fantastic guy i mean he's a he's a tough guy and he's honest and he's incredibly well read and i owe him a lot he uh his edits on my short stories help me be a better writer for my longer fiction and uh and he's funny as hell too and oh god he could make me laugh um and in a good way too but he's um so anyway i i submitted some stories uh to him that he happened to like and i was fortunate enough that he did i even had one of my stories that random thug lit nominated for an itw award oh really years back yeah so I was really um, happy about that. Yeah, I, so I've done a lot of short fiction. I had another one mentioned in this year's honorable mention for uh, the Down and Out magazine uh, called uh, A Solitary Man. Uh, that's also a James Hicks short story, too. And that was so, an honorable mention for? For 2008 uh, Best uh, Short Story Mysteries of 2018. Oh, it, it, by yeah. who? Uh, I think Otto Penzler's group put oh, it wow. out or something like that. Yeah, wow. so I mean, it was honorable mention. It wasn't, they didn't print the story, but I was honored just to see my name in the back. And uh, because it's it's also a James Hicks theory, uh, uh-huh. story. And um, I love the short form as much as I love the long form. It's just that when I start doing one, I can't do the other. I either am writing a novel or I'm writing a short story. I can't do, I can't take a break and do one or the other. I, I just need to concentrate on what I'm doing. Everybody's process is different, for sure. Exactly um, right. You've got uh, down and out the magazine volume one here. Uh, yeah. I had a story in volume through three, so uh, uh, there's another connection. There you uh, go. But I am impressed with this other one here. You were part of the crime fiction inspired by the songs of Johnny Cash called Just to Watch Them Die. What song did, did you do? I did a cover that he did of Nine Inch Nails' song called Hurt. Oh, yeah. And it's also with James Hicks. The reason why I wanted to do that one was because when uh, Trent Reznor heard Johnny Cash do that version of his infamous song, he said it was like watching my girlfriend marry somebody else. He said, I knew that wasn't my song anymore. And uh, I know it was one of my favorites that Johnny Cash did. And he did it, I think, really at the end of his life. Yeah, I think it was one of the last songs he did. So that's why mm-hmm. that song and that story um, meant a lot to me to be able to do. And I was grateful to Joe Clifford for being kind enough to let me be part of that anthology. I had Joe on the show, actually, uh, about a year ago, and uh, he's he's a fun guy to talk to. Yeah, he really knows the craft, and he's a writer's writer, and he's a good man. He's a no-bullshit guy, too, that's for sure. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you get the straight stuff from him. And if he, if, if he thinks you need to be called out on something, he will call you out on it. He's uh, And I like that, too. You know, you don't see a lot of that in this industry anymore. And I, uh, I prefer it. I wish more people were frank about what they feel. I, I wanted to ask you about something that I realize you're, you're going to have to be a little bit coy about. But if I'm not mistaken, you mentioned uh, that you'd picked up some ghostwriting. Uh, now, obviously, ghostwriting, the whole point is you can't say who you're ghostwriting for. So I would never ask you that. But can, right. can you can you talk about how that process is different than writing work under your own name? Sure. It's an interesting process and one that I was kind of reluctant to undertake in the beginning. But now that I've done it, I'm so glad that I did. Uh, it's You have to read enough of the main subject's work in order to get a flavor for how they write 
how the stories flow, the kind of um, action and pacing that the audience expects. And once you have a familiarity with that, then you can start telling the story that you would like to tell. And in my case, I was able to do that. I already had a rough idea, but it was a challenge to be able to, for the first time in my whole career, bend it so that it sounded like it was in someone else's voice. And my, my greatest thrill is going to be if it's published and people, A, aren't going to know who it is, and B, what title it's under, because my name will not be on the book, nor should it be, and B, if no one can tell that I did it, I'm going to be very happy about mm-hmm. that. So um, that's what I strive for. I mean, when I think of ghostwriting, I think of, uh, you know, Pat Sajak wants to write his uh, memoirs and can't put two words together. So you talk to him and and you write his story and he pretends he did. But it sounds like you're talking more about uh, writing an established uh, author's series as that author. Am I am I hitting closer to, to the reality or? Right, it's a, it's an established author that's uh, that has series that has written in different genres, that has written in different voices, and I chose one voice that I was going to follow, and uh, it was it was great. It was a great challenge for me because you know we all can write our own stuff, right? We can all figure out, oh, this is pretty. This is how I want to say it, and then you say it that way. But with this, it was more of a challenge to to try to get into somebody else's head and try to appreciate a whole different audience that I had never reached before. You know, about a dozen of us had a really nice steak dinner as a result of this, if I remember correctly. <laughs> <laughs> They're about your con. <laughs> it was also, too. I mean, we never, you know how it is. You go to these, these conventions and then you see people and then you say, oh, yeah, I definitely want to hang out with that person. I definitely want to hang out with them. And then you never get the time. And then, you know, with that one, we had a few people who weren't able to make the conference. And, you know, Reed and I were so lucky that we ran into you when, uh, literally seconds after you ran into Dana and Corky. And mm-hmm. uh, we said, you know what, you'd be one of those people that we'd always say, hey, we're going to hang out with them later. And thank God we had space at the table and you were able to make it. So, I mean, that was mm-hmm. that was great. And, uh, a couple of other people weren't able to make it, but we had a lot of fun. And that's what these conventions are really all about. Uh, forget about the drama. Forget about the the inside politics nonsense that springs up lately. It's uh, it's about meeting people in the craft and, and getting to know them and, and their their struggles, too. When I first met Dana King there, and he Dana was the uh, featured guest on the uh, January 2019 episode, yep. um, and and I told him, you know, that it was really great how he uh, he just befriended me. Basically, he's almost like a third graders on a school, you know, playground. Like, hey, you want to be friends? I mean, that was that easy. <laughs> I thought you it knew was each just, other yeah. forever. No, I, thought, no. I mean, when I, I didn't no. know you guys only knew each other for 10 minutes. That was amazing. No. Yeah. And then it was the same way with you when you walked yeah. up. The, the one thing about Dana that um, I did know was he, you know, he had written a, a pretty good blog post about his first uh, voucher con and how, you know, someone that he knew uh, introduced him around and basically, you know, helped him acclimate and right yeah. away i was like hey i just read your blog post and we started chatting and then then basically you and dana both did for me what you know scott phillips and uh, his other friend did for dana and uh you know i had great time with dinner and then uh you you and rita put on that great uh great event uh while the noir in the bar was going on there uh <laughs> yeah uh, we missed the fireworks you know, there was some fireworks <laughs> wasn't there <laughs> Oh, man. Sweet Jesus. I'm glad I wasn't there for that one, I'll tell you. I'm going to say that I I think your idea of 
dodging any of the controversy or the drama is probably good advice. Right. I mean, you know what? Look, we're all we're all chasing the same buck. We're all chasing the same dream. And, you know, you don't want to make too much of it. You don't want to belittle it either. But I mean, there's a time and place for, for politics There's a time and place for acrimony. And that's just not it. I mean, it's tough enough sitting down in front of a computer and, and writing all by yourself if you're going to do it well. That's tough. I mean, and, and there's, a, there's a lot of time you spend by yourself doing that. And you know what? When you go to one of these conventions, you're, you're paying a lot of money to go. You might as well go and be friendly and enjoy it instead of having your defenses up all the time and looking for a mm-hmm. fight. I just don't, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's, there's a time and place for that. And, you know, that's why it's great seeing people like Dana King there. I mean, Dana and Corky are just wonderful people. And people on Facebook are very political and whatnot. But you know what? When you go to these things and you meet them, you're, they're just people. They're just like mm-hmm. us. And, and, you know, let your guard down and get to know somebody. And maybe you'll understand them a little bit better. That's what it's all about. It should be anyway. Well, I totally agree. I think uh, you get to meet people for the first time and make friends. That's how uh, how I met you and, uh, and and your wife and and Dana and people like that. And then you also get to meet in person people that you've been dealing with uh, electronically for I don't know how long. I mean, I, I knew Eric Beatner for like four years before I actually shook his hand. Oh wow! Uh, and and we wrote three books together. And uh, I don't even think we talked on the phone or online until after the third book was about to come out. You know, got to go, got to go to BoucherCon and finally meet him in person. And, you know, it's just a great opportunity for, for that sort of things. And you feel like you're, oh, hey, I'm home. This is yeah. my tribe. Everybody likes you as a default. That's their default setting. I like you. How are you? And then if you're a dick, you know, then they decide, oh, I don't like you after all. But you've got to work for that. You know, Uh, everybody's, you know, predisposed towards, hey, we're all in this together and we all like each other. And that's just that feeling of belonging and acceptance is is uh, I think it's it's addictive. I mean, I think it's uh, it's the whole purpose of going. Yeah, and it's restorative, too. I mean, it's nice to be, oh, yeah. to be around people. And then, you know, after a while, everybody's creative batteries need to be recharged. And those are great events to do it. I mean, lately, it's becoming uh, a little bit too political for my taste. But I um, and I'm sorry to see that it takes away some of the joy from it and, and some of the escapism from it. People are a little bit take themselves a little bit too seriously at these things but you know i mean for the most part i enjoy it and i've never regretted going to a baushikan and and i intend on going to the one in dallas looks like it's going to be a great time good i'm going as well i'm, I'm excited for that uh, for all the reasons that you would expect but additionally uh, uh much like having written books with eric beatner and then getting to meet him i'll get a chance to meet one of my writing partners jim wilski in uh, person Oh, good. Okay. Uh, and we wrote four books together and have never met in person. Oh, wow. Uh, you know, we've been talking about getting a steak dinner and raising a glass for, you know, seven or eight years now. And it's just, uh, I'm glad we're finally going to get a chance to do it. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, but I'm just, I'm also looking forward. It's now it feels like a family reunion that's uh, mm-hmm. on, on the calendar. So I'm really, really looking forward to it. Um, hey, uh, I, I wanted to ask you then. Uh, based on some of the stuff we've talked about, I get the impression that uh, that writing is a full-time gig for you right now. Uh, no, it's not. Actually, I have a oh. full-time day job. I wish I could write full-time. I, um, you know, but I'm fortunate enough to have a, a good job. Uh, I do that full-time, and then I do my writing at nights and on the weekends. Um, I don't have uh, my wife and I don't have kids. We don't have. Uh, I don't have any hobbies. 
Um, I don't golf. I smoke cigars and I write, and that's pretty much what I do. Um, that keeps me sane. I write fast because I, and I haven't experienced writer's block yet. And people get mad at me for saying that because they they think I'm full of shit, but I'm not. I'm I haven't had it yet because I haven't run out of ideas yet. And mm-hmm. I've had so many of them piling up for so long that I'm still filtering through everything that mm-hmm. that's been there for a while. So. Um, I've got, you know, a lot of the stuff you're reading now has been around in my head for eight, nine years. So when that reserve runs out, then maybe I'll have writer's block. You know, writer's block is an interesting concept. Um, I'm probably going to make some people mad when I say this, but, uh, I kind of think it's bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, if you think you're experiencing writer's block, what, what do you do? You're right. Even if it yeah. sucks and you write your way through it, um, what I think writer's block really is, is it's it's just crippling insecurity. Somebody's not willing to let go of the insecurity to let the words happen. And, and But everybody's process is, is different and maybe it does exist in a different form for different people. But like you, I've never I've never run into it. Uh, so I guess. No, I haven't. No, I mean, I, for me, I, what, I, what has happened to me and happens to me every book is I fall out of love with the book at some point. I get tired of it. I get really, and it's usually, it happens at different times. Sometimes it happens at the end and I'm rushing just to get the damn thing done so I can start the editing process because things are bothering me. But there are every once, every single book I've done, and I've got 10 of them out now, I, I've fallen out of love with it at, at one point mm-hmm. and I had to give it up for a weekend. And mm-hmm. I then said, okay, fine, that Monday morning on the train in, boom, I did it. And then I was right back on the horse. So, there's nothing wrong with taking a little bit of a break, but you also don't want to use it as an excuse either. Yeah. You know, I'm in my River City series, I finished the fourth book. It was published in 2011, and I didn't get back to that series until last year. There's a seven-year break between books four and five, only about a year in the world of the series, but, you know, mm-hmm. real time, seven years. And, you know, and I think part of that had to do with, you know, I retired. I uh, had kind of a rough time near the end of my career with a tyrant chief and, 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 and everything. And so I can say that, oh, you know, writer's block is bullshit. But uh, at the same time, you know, I wasn't feeling motivated to go back into River City because River City was essentially a fictional Spokane, which is what I had left. And so uh, if that's what people mean by writer's block, I get that because it took me about seven years before I felt like I wanted to write Mm -hmm. uh, about that that area again. Um, When you said you fall out of love, uh, is it a different reason every time or do you just feel like you've, you've spent so much time with it that you're sick of it or what's happening there? Right. Sometimes what I'll feel is that the book isn't flowing as well as I'd like, or I don't think there's enough action, or I think there's too much action, or there's just a scene that I know I need to get right, and I I dwell on it too much, and I tend to just get sick of it, and I just want to move on. I just want to get past it, um, it, but it's too important for me to leave, because I know a lot of writers can do this, where they'll say, I'll skip it, and I'll come back to it. And early in my career, I was able to do that. But now I can't because, especially when I'm writing about the spy thriller series, everything hinges on something else. Mm-hmm. So I can't take a break and afford to risk losing the thread of it because mm-hmm. my, my biggest weakness is editing. I'm not a very good editor. I'm not good at picking up on things that I missed. I'm good at receiving edits, which is which is a good habit to have, I guess. I'm not, I, I don't mind criticism. I don't mind critique. 
but I'm not good at going back and saying, oh, yeah, this is where I, I meant to pick it up again, unless I actually continue the action all the way through. So, mm-hmm. um, so that's why, I mean, I'll, I'll fall out of love with a, with a book and just want to get past that scene. Yeah, I go through stages as well. I think uh, that initial, oh my God, this is a great idea. I love this idea. I want to write this book. And then, oh my God, I'm writing this book. This is such a good book. This is awesome. Oh, I'm having so much fun. And then at some point, probably when it's done most of the time, I look at it and I go, this is the most terrible book not that I've ever written, but that's ever been written. Um, (laughs) You know, I, I always hand it to my wife first she's my first reader and and i give it to her and i try not to say this but it seems like i do every time i say here you go you're probably going to hate it right <laughs> and then she reads it and she hates parts of it but she loves it and mm-hmm. uh, gives good feedback and and then about the time the editing process starts um and i'm rereading it you get hit with that wow this is actually pretty good feeling and then you're you're on the train again you're ready to go uh yep. i wonder if that's pretty much uh what most writers experience if you talk to other writers, do, do you get that feedback? Yeah, I do. I mean, it's kind of like when you hit a golf ball that's perfectly, and that's the reason why you keep going back. And the same thing happens with me with writing. When I feel that everything is clicking along, uh, I'm usually right. I usually have a good sense of when a story needs to be amended, when a story needs to change, and when it needs to be left alone. There's nothing quite like the feeling of when you know it's going right. And you just sit back and let it happen, even though you're the person who's doing it. Um, I, uh, now, what about you? Do you outline at all? Yeah, bullet bullet point kind of outlines. Um, when I'm doing collaborations, uh, we outline a little bit more, a little more tightly because we're, you know, it's kind of our, our joint map to, to, to the story. Uh, are, do you? or? Uh, I tend not to outline because when I do, I get analysis paralysis. <laughs> and I fall in love with the, the format. It has to be just right. I can't miss anything. And if anything's missing, then it throws everything off. And then the format, the, the outline becomes the thing. And that's not the thing. The book is the thing. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, so I, that's, that's me. I know people outline, and I, I always encourage people mm-hmm. to do what's best for them. Yeah. I see an outline as a map, whether it's a really deep outline or just a few bullet points or whatever, but it's the map, not the land that you're walking on. So I totally agree. That's an excellent idea. I like that idea. I like that phrase. Um, well, uh, you know, uh, I've been looking forward to this, uh, since, uh, last September when we first met, uh, at VoucherCon. And so I'm glad we finally got to sit down and, and get you on the show. Uh, I am enjoying all three of the books that you sent me. They're all good in different ways. And, uh, I think that's one of the things I was excited to talk to you about was the fact that these, uh, three different types of books are are very different the uh, period pieces the thrillers and then the westerns uh i think it's pretty impressive when one author can uh have that many different uh styles thank you yeah well one of my heroes is richard matheson and he wrote almost every genre going and ultimately i'd like to do the same and i uh, i always admire people who try to push themselves and that's what i always try to do with my writing well uh it shows on the page uh and i'm glad we got to to do this interview and uh thank, thanks a lot for coming on the show terrence i really appreciate <laughs> it it's been great talking to you all right folks there you are terrence mccauley in one short episode great guy really smart guy and uh well-spoken and uh writes a pretty wide range within the genre and and obviously outside the genre as well 
Ahead in the month of March on Wrong Place, Right Crime, we are going to have a, a couple more open and shut episodes. Uh, the next one will be with uh, one of my co-authors, Colin Conway, to talk about the reissue of Some Degree of Murder by Down and Out Books, a book he and I wrote together. And then at the end of the month, we're going to talk to Gary Phillips, who penned the fourth episode of A Grifter Song, The Movie Makers. Uh, moving into April, we're going to talk to uh, debut novelist Sean A. Cosby. Uh, his book, My Darkest Prayer, uh, came out uh, a little while ago. And then we are going to go across that giant pond known as the Atlantic and talk to Yorkshireman Colin Campbell, former police officer and author uh, of the Jim Grant thrillers. Uh, his new book, Jamaica Plain, is being reissued. Uh, by Down Out Books, and uh, I had a conversation with him. Our feature episode in April will be Rick Allerman, and uh, we caught up with Rick to find out a little bit about him. What city do you live in now? About 40 miles north of Panama City Beach. Who's your favorite writer? I will say Jack Vance. What's your favorite movie? When I was a kid, I would take the bus every single weekend to go see the science fiction movie Logan's Run, and I've never done that before or since. Favorite TV show? The Wire. What are you working on right now? Uh, you mean aside from the novel that I've been pushing off now for over a year because I have the inability to say no to other people? What hobby do you have that has nothing to do with writing? I used to jump out of airplanes, but I don't do that anymore. Your favorite sport? Soccer. Who is your favorite musician? Miles Davis. What is your five second advice to aspiring writers? Learn how to write the book that's in your head. Where would you like to go that you've never been? Yosemite. What is your favorite quote? Some mistakes are too tempting not to repeat. All right, there you are, folks. A quick uh, snapshot of who Rick Allerman is. We'll have a much longer conversation with him in about a month. Quite a few open and shut episodes in between here and there that I think you'll enjoy. Uh, I want to say uh, thanks to Terrence McCauley for coming on the show, uh, as well as how kind he was to me at the uh, BoucherCon last year. Uh, thanks to Joni Fisher and Jim Thompson for their great recommendations. As always, to Down Out Books for being a great sponsor of the show. And most of all to you, uh, the listener, thanks for tuning in. That's what makes this worth doing. Uh, I appreciate it. Next episode will be Colin Conway talking about some degree of murder. Until then, this is Frank Zafiro reminding you that sometimes you got to be in the wrong place to write crime.